Gracious God, I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to to study your word, to uh, kind of walk alongside of each other. We thank you for not only the scriptures, but those men and women who have written about real life issues in our history, and that they become also uh, speakers today. Is significantly today for us, it is C.S. Lewis. We pray, O oh God, that through broken instruments, that you will be, uh, allow us to be proclaimers of your forgiveness. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. We are going to do as we have done and begin with a review uh, and then launch into the new material. Um, last week, we focused on chapters 18 and 19, or letters 18 and 19, and I use those terms, chapter or letter, interchangeably. So let's review. We'll look at those very quickly. Uh, then John will uh, field a question that uh, we think some of you may have on your minds about our methodology and why we're focusing on what we're focusing on. So. Um, of course, it is not possible to cover in six weeks all that is to be said on a subject as, um, with as much going on as the screw tape letters. So what we have tried hard to do is look at screw tape letters thematically and just bring out some of the great themes in a six-week period, such themes as the undulation principle, which describes the rhythms of human experience and how at some point in that rhythm, we are more vulnerable and more susceptible to being derailed by the devil. Um, we have looked at our unique susceptibility to pride and why pride is the foundational original sin that tripped up Adam and Eve and that made the devil into the devil, as C.S. Lewis so aptly puts it. We looked at humility as the antidote uh, and opposite to pride, how to cultivate it in ourselves. Uh, how to be mindful of pride and how to try to get out ahead of it before it uh, takes us over. Uh, last week, we looked at love. Uh, we looked at the disinterested, godlike love as being the supreme antidote to that self-interest and self-centeredness that is the ultimate and that's the worst expression of what last week's lesson called the philosophy of hell. So that brings us to chapter 18 where you have a chapter on the philosophy of hell. Chapter 18 begins with screw tape advising Wormwood on the basic technique of sexual temptation. And this leads to a discussion on the philosophy of hell as contrasted to the philosophy of heaven. I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the techniques of Lewis is he often defines things by their opposite to sort of bring out their qualities and help us get a better grasp of what he's talking about. So you have the philosophy of hell in 18 juxtaposed with the philosophy of heaven. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that oneself is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. So that, in a nutshell, is the philosophy of hell. Um, if you look at it, it's, it's contrasted with the philosophy of heaven, where we're told, and why don't we look at that? Um, now, the enemy, remember, God is the enemy, because we're talking about two demons here and their correspondence with each other. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. 
He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. Referencing God claiming himself, saying uh, that he is love, uh, that he's love through and through. Um, so God aims at a contradiction according to these demons. And it's a contradiction in their imaginations. We know as Christians that it's not a contradiction. But Satan is just, or the screw tape and wormwood are just being used to illustrate how far their view is removed from what the Christian's view should be of love. Uh, God aims at a contradiction, things would be many, yet somehow also one. Uh, and then it goes on, this impossibility he calls love. Much of last week is the musings of what is God really up to? Why is God doing this? Why is he taking us to this impossibly illogical place uh, called love? So having spelled out this contrast between hellish self-interest and heavenly disinterest is the way I think of it, uh, tape then explains the relationship between human love and human sex. And here's where it gets interesting. Uh, um, chapter 19 is a series of musings on what love is and why it must be impossible. In the cynical world of these demons, love is an illusion. Screwtape is still hammering away uh, uh, at a strategy for getting the patient, as they call this new Christian, uh, off the rails. Uh, and the chapter ends with uh, Screwtape asking for a report on all of the eligible young women in the patient's neighborhood who could be used to tempt the patient. So you can kind of see where this is headed. Letter 20 is uh, the first of what we're looking at for this week. Uh, we're going to talk about it in just a moment, but before launching into uh, 20, 21, 22, and 23, uh, and 21 and 23 specifically, uh, John is going to respond to a comment that some of you may have been wondering about pertaining to our methodology. So John, why don't we hear from you and then we'll move into the new material. Right, the answer is because we said so. No, just teasing. The question was, how are you picking and choosing the uh, chapters? And, uh, and that's a, that's a, it's a difficult thing to do in this. Um, you know, when I uh, sat down with, when Gil and I sat down, we, we, we decided that we were not going to go letter to letter to letter and try to do a very shallow, one inch deep uh, scan of the whole book. We thought that maybe because of what we've seen in the letters, that there are major themes that we want to talk about. Themes that maybe are um, real to us as they were real to, to C.S. Lewis and his uh, culture and his day. And it was basically picking and choosing of those. Those did morph as we began. We, we did move some things around and change them as we had gone through. So that's basically the, uh, the how and the why we chose what we did. And, you know, when you're looking at a work like this, you just, you do have to kind of pick and choose. It's, uh, there's a lot going on here, a lot of balls up in the air. So you look at certain themes and you try to trace them through and bring them out. Um, thank you, John. I, I think that's about as well as it could be said. But looking at chapter 20, uh, chapter 20 is one of those chapters that we had planned to skip. In response to a comment last week from a member of this group, John and I decided that we need to do uh, a little bit more than just scratch the surface on chapter 20 or letter 20. 
uh, because it really does kind of set the stage for much of what's happening uh, afterwards. Uh, letter 20 begins with Screwtape uh, observing that God has put this hedge of protection around the patient, making it much harder for Wormwood to attack the patient's chastity, uh, uh, to use sexual temptation. So they're having to come up with a new strategy because this one isn't working. God has stepped in and he's cut off this line of attack. There are two specific concerns that Uncle Screwtape has with his nephew Wormwood's very lackadaisical performance as a tempter. Uh, the first is that the patient has, alas, become self-aware. Remember, self-awareness is a theme that sort of goes through C.S. Lewis, and the devil, if he can keep us deceived about what's going on, if he can make us think that we're going to stay in that trough or in that down, that down place in the undulation, of human experience. Uh, he's got us right where he wants us. That's the perfect position to attack. So the patient has become self-aware. Self-aware about what? Uh, the patient has become aware that the best the devil can do is a passing temptation. The devil tempts and then the temptation is over. The attacks that a demon mounts against us do not and cannot last forever. The second uh, transgression, uh, uh, poor Wormwood, you almost feel sorry for him, uh, is that he's been dragging his feet about putting together uh, this dossier of attractive, eligible young women. So Wormwood really needs to tighten up his act. That's, that's what Uncle Screwtape is saying. He's saying, Wormwood, you're messing up. Here's how you're messing up. And here's what you need to work on. So he then, Screwtape, launches into a discussion at length about how to make the patient fall in love with the right type of woman. This is an interesting commentary on how the ideals of what each sex finds attractive in the other change about every 30 years or so. And the correspondence between the demons suggests that they are in charge of that process under which uh, the ideal woman or the ideal man changes in the eyes of the opposite sex. Um, Screwtape even says that that's organized by demons who are further down in the really deep pit of hell. Screwtape is basically suggesting to Wormwood that the patient should always be chasing an idealized fictional image of the ideal woman. And if he's doing that, he's always going to be set up for disappointment. As a result, and this is after setting up the patient to have this unrealistic idea of, of the ideal woman, as a result, we're more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist, making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time, making its demands more and more impossible. What follows, you can easily forecast, and that's the dissatisfaction uh, that I mentioned just a moment ago. Recall earlier when we were getting together and talking on, on for these sessions that um, Satan is the father of lies, but he's also a cheat and a fraud. Uh, he makes you want more and more, and he delivers less and less, always making you want more and more. There's an addictive quality uh, that's sort of baked into many of us that he takes advantage of and that he exploits to our detriment. So in closing on letter 20, uh, I would urge you to look back at book 3, chapters 5 and chapter, chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Mere Christianity, where there's a good deal in there on chastity. These ideas are more fully developed there. Uh, chapter 5 discusses the sexual impulse in man. 
what's gone wrong, a good thing corrupted. Remember, that's another theme of C.S. Lewis. Every pleasure comes from God. Every gift is from heaven above. The devil can't originate a single good thing. All he can do is corrupt what God has made. And then there's chapter 6, uh, which discusses the sexual impulse in man as God intended it within the context of Christian marriage. And there's much to think about there. And it is worth reading for a more full treatment of uh, this particular letter and the ones we're looking at today. Um, it's also interesting that in Mere Christianity, Lewis tells us that the greatest temptation is still pride. It's a sin that opens the door to the others, including infidelity. So he's not saying infidelity is okay, but he's saying that you have to put it in the context and look at where it's coming from, and ultimately it can be traced back to pride and self-interest. And that's the note on which chapter 20 uh, ends and uh, 21 begins. Uh, Screwtape in chapter 21 says, well, you know, since sexual temptation isn't working, let's attack the patient's peevishness. And that's one of these very British words that you see on Masterpiece Theater and, and Agatha Christie Mysteries, but peevishness. And it was from the era in which C.S. Lewis was written. Uh, it was a word in fairly common use. Uh, it's sometimes confused with being petty. Uh, it is different from being petty. Uh, I looked at a couple of different definitions of peevishness, and the working definition that I came up with and that I'm using today is the trait or the quality of being easily irritated, especially by unimportant things. So in other words, it is the trait or the quality or the vulnerability of becoming very easily irritated and annoyed by things that when you pull back and you look at them from about 30,000 feet, really just aren't that important. Uh, and uh, like it's a salt paper salt shaker on the table, or uh, is this the soup spoon as opposed to the teaspoon, Th those types of things. So uh, Wormwood is operating on the assumption that we can all be distracted through our peevishness. What does that mean? That means that we're all susceptible to being peevish about something. So no one can succumb to the sin of pride and say, well, I'm not peevish, because we all have something that sort of pushes our buttons. And this is fertile ground for an attack especially in a period of sexual temptation. Um, as is often Lewis's method, he will go back three steps, uh, and then he builds through a series of logical deductions based on human experience to his main point, which is still that they need to be figure out a new way to make the sexual temptation angle work with this particular patient. So what Lewis does uh, is he looks at our human sense of ownership. And I was thinking initially, what on earth does this have to do with sexual temptation? But Lewis connects the dots, and that's what we will do in, in this particular chapter. Um, when my dad found out that we were pregnant with our second child, and I'm not going to give you too much information, I promise you that, but when my dad found out that we were expecting our second child, he did the math, he did the algebra, it wasn't too hard to figure out. He said, you realize these two babies are going to be 16 months apart? And I said, absolutely. And, you know, he asked if we planned it that way, and we dealt with that discussion. Uh, but then he pointed out to me that there's nothing meaner than a three-year-old with a two-year-old. 
And lo and behold, he was right. Uh, Three-year-old with two-year-old. And what is the big word? Mine. Mine is something that is baked into us. We're hardwired with that sense of ownership. Uh, and so Lewis says, let's go back and look at that and trace it back through to how we can capitalize on this to bring about the downfall of this new Christian. He begins by noting that men are not angered by mere misfortune. In other words, we won't get upset about when things just go wrong. Uh, most of us don't. He uses men collectively uh, in a traditional way as in mankind or the entire human race throughout these chapters. Uh, what sets us off, though, is a feeling that a legitimate claim, something that we're entitled to, has been denied. And if you think about it, that's true. We're not upset when bad things happen to other people, for the most part, uh, but we do become upset when we feel that it is something to which we are entitled and that it has been denied. Uh, he gives us some examples in the chapter. Uh, one example that he uses is how do you feel about people who you consider as stealing your time? How do you feel about interruptions? Anyone in this room like interruptions? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, lawyers have a saying uh, that a lawyer's time and advice are his or her stock in trade. And uh, we all possess a sense that our time belongs to us, that we wake up each morning with absolute ownership of the next 24 hours that come after that. Uh, when we're interrupted from something we need to do or from something we think we're entitled to do, we react much as we would as though we were the victim of a theft, as though our pocket had just been picked or our house had been broken into. Um, we have the saying, time is money. Doesn't apply just to lawyers. It's a saying that runs through our culture. Um, in pages 112 and 113, again, and this is interesting, this is that theme of self-awareness, Scrutay urges Wormwood not to let the patient examine this claim of ownership. Whatever you do, don't let him realize that it is completely illogical. It is supported by no evidence whatsoever. Uh, there is nothing this patient has done to earn this time, to create this time. He cannot create a single second. We don't own it. It is purely a gift from God. Saying that time is your own is about like saying that you own the moon and the stars when you, you sit down and you really look at it. So uh, Screwtape does not want the patient to become aware that he doesn't really own what he considers to be time. Uh, and uh, it's best from the demon's perspective to keep us thinking that our time is our own. Letter 21 closes out by noting that what we are talking about when we mention time applies not to just our illusion that we own our calendars and we own our daybooks and we own our schedules, but we also own our bodies. And the fallacy that is behind our view of time, that we think we own time but that we don't, uh, is also true of our view of ownership of our bodies. And if you look at this slide, this sort of sums it up. Much of what modern resistance to chastity, much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they, quote, own, in quote, their bodies, those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. So no one has to teach us that word, mine. 
it comes out. And the first time your child said it, you probably looked and said, where'd that come from? Uh, well, the demons are kind of telling you where it came from. It's, it's part of uh, our self-centeredness that is related to pride, that is related to our sense of entitlement, but they all flow from the same wellspring. Uh, Lewis would say, and um, I think experience agrees, that this is our original sin nature coming out when we see that. Um, so this letter closes with screw tape. Uh, he's delighting and deceiving uh, and cheating us. He points out uh, uh, that ultimately the joke is on us. Uh, that's at the bottom of page 114, which I thought was worth looking at. He says, all the time the joke is that the word, quote, mine, end quote, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. So at this point, uh, hopefully we've set the stage for the rest of Lewis's argument that we're looking at today. Uh, and um, uh, the plot is thickening, so John's going to bring us up to speed on the patient's love life. So he's um, actually involved with this woman that's really making screw tape a little angry. So here's the scenario of letter 23. Through this girl... And her disgusting family, the patient, is now getting to know more Christians every day. And very intelligent Christians, too. And because of this, there's the problem. Because the patient is surrounding himself with Christians, it'll be a long time or quite impossible to remove this spirituality from his life. So there's the problem. And very quickly, here's the solution. We've got to corrupt it. Now, corrupt what? We got to corrupt the spirituality. We got to corrupt their understanding of theology or religion. So the, uh, the plan of attack is that Screwtape is telling uh, Wormwood, listen, let's get, the, let's get into a place here where you can, uh, where the attack is like borderline between religion or theology and politics. And, and several of his new friends, who are these Christians that he's been introduced to, um, who, have a very much, or who are very much alive to the social implication of their religion. And the rationale is that Christianity began going wrong and departing from the doctrine of its founder, this is what Screwtape's writing here, at a very early stage. So this is where I want to stop for a second. What is Screwtape saying here? What, what is he mentioning here? What is he describing here in this? Uh, the understanding or the implication is that in the most recent writings about theology and religion and, and spirituality, um, as they look over the 2,000 years since the growth of the church and the birth of the church, that there's something that has gone wrong. And what has gone wrong in the faith, in the spirituality? He talks about the, the corruption of spirituality comes with the differences in theology and philosophy between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. 
The historical Jesus account is that the gospel accounts were based on real historical events. And Jesus was a real person who lived in Palestine in first century AD. Now, I would assume that the majority of us would fall into the historical Jesus camp. The scholarship of Albert Schweitzer and Ernest Renan, they sought to reconstruct the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, by separating the theological implications that have been written about him in the centuries that came after his life. So much of what we know today and much of what we believe today, I would assume it's because we have learned it in Sunday school. We were told of the implications of what we were being taught. What does it mean for us today? And so the historical Jesus camp would say, okay, it's not that the theology is wrong, but we can't have the theology without the historical facts. We can't separate what we know and believe in our religious understanding, what our religious understanding is, outside of the historical facts of Jesus. The historical Jesus camp would argue that to understand who Jesus was, you've got to separate out the theology first and look at the implications of what his life meant in first century AD to 12 people and hundreds of others in that socioeconomic culture. That's the historical Jesus camp. The other camp is called the Christ of faith. And the argument of the Christ of faith is they believe that Jesus was primarily a figurative person, more of a figure of faith, and that the historical facts are less important than the spiritual message of his teachings. It's not that Jesus loved people, it's that he told his, his disciples to love. It's more important for us to love other people because Jesus modeled that for us. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that on the surface level, but the problem is that when you pull, write that or let it go to its natural conclusion is that you are denying the historical life of Jesus. This was a big argument. Did Jesus actually walk the earth? Or did these 12 men actually create the Gospels to tell of a new figure of faith that the world was duped into believing? And it's good stuff, and we should live into it. We should love people, right? So we're going to follow this figure of faith. Now go back to Screwtape. That kind of sets up the, the background here of what he is arguing, right? Now, you go back to Screwtape, he, uh, he, he says to Wormwood, he says, I want you to direct the patient's devotion to the historical Jesus, as each historical Jesus does not exist. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, I want you to teach that the historical Jesus was not really historical. That's what he's saying here. Because he wants Wormwood to know that each historical Jesus is unhistorical. It's just a figment. It's just a story. It's not real. That's what screw tape is doing. And, and you direct the patients to, toward this by doing this. You're either going to suppress one point of the scripture, of the gospel message, or you're going to exaggerate another. If you suppress something and exaggerate another, you can make the patient do whatever you want. You can make the patient and you can convince him 
that this is openly the most important thing about being a Christian. But what's happening here is what Screwtape is trying to convince Wormwood, who is the demon over this patient, who is now in this group of really spiritual Christians, and the idea is I'm going to corrupt it. What Screwtape is telling Wormwood is make Jesus, the actual person, less important than the good ideas that this figurehead actually says. Attack the identity of Jesus. Convince them that Jesus was nothing more than a guy with good ideas. And Screwtape says, in doing this, what we're going to do is we're actually going to, to destroy devotional life, the devotional life of the patient. Because nobody, he writes here, for the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language a long time ago. Such a person, such an object, in fact, cannot be worshipped. We don't worship good ideas. If Jesus is just a person who has a good idea, it is in a pool or in an ocean of thousands and thousands of years of people having good ideas and makes him less important. We have enough good ideas, he writes here. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection and a single theological doctrine, the redemption, operating on a sense of sin which they had already had, and sin not in against that some new fancy dress law produced as a novelty by a great man, but against the old platitudinous universal moral law which they had been taught by their nurses and mothers. The Christ of faith says the Gospels came before Christianity. In other words, they were written to describe Christianity. But Christianity happened before the Gospels. And they were written not to make Christians as much to edify Christians who were already made. This is, this is something that is, is in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that he uh, actually brings out here. For when you get down to it, is not the popular idea of Christianity simply this? That Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher. In other words, isn't this just the idea in society today? That all that Jesus Christ is, is just someone who has a good idea. But Jesus means so much more than this. When you look at the scriptures, you find that they are talking about something more than just a good advice. When you look at scripture and you see the resurrection and redemption... That's not good advice. That's a necessity of life. The fact that Jesus calls himself the son of God. The scripture says that those who put their confidence in God become children of God. And the scripture talks about that his death saves us from our sin. That's just not about loving other people. There is so much more at stake. In fact, in his most, probably one of the most popular places in mere Christianity that's often quoted 
in the book one, I think it's the end of uh, three, your book chapter three, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, someone with good ideas, but I do not accept his claim to be God. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. He gives this reason why. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be considered a lunatic on the level with a man who says he has a poached, he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You see, if you are a moral person and you call yourself the son of God, that doesn't make you a moral person. You're either a lunatic or you're a liar. He says you must make the choice. Either Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us, and he did not intend to. You see, what Screwtape wants Wormwood to do is just say, hey, let's water down this Jesus. Let's water down this religion. Let's make this pa our, your patient believe that Christianity and his faith in God can be compartmentalized to certain areas of his life. When he's here, he has to be on spot when he's with his girlfriend's family and their friends. But outside, he can be anything else. That Jesus is nothing more than one who gives good advice. But that was never the option. Jesus made it clear that you and I have to make a choice to the identity of who he claims to be because there is no other option. And the way we do that is go back and look at the resurrection and the redemption. This is where I want to end here on this. Dr. Kara Powell, she wrote a book called Sticky Faith. She talks about a... Um, a uh, a survey that she did, and here was the question that they were going to ask. And before I show you the question, I want you to give the framework. The question was asked of juniors in college who not only, it's not just any junior, but juniors in college who have spent their youth in a church youth group. What would you say Christianity is all about? Pretty straightforward. More than one-third of those asked this question did not even mention the name Jesus. How do you talk about Christianity without talking about Christ? The most dominant answer was that Jesus was a man of good advice. That we should love and you would probably share this with your children. And you would tell each other that love is important. And I will tell you that love is very important. We should love. It's what Jesus said. Because of your love, others will know that you are my disciples. What's wrong with Jesus being just considered a person of, of love? Being a Christian has a certain amount of this love, and he wants us. But faith cannot be based upon the virtues of of a human. Faith, our Christianity is not about how good we are at being humble, at being truthful, at being loving. 
And I'm glad that that's the case. I'm glad that's the case. Because when you settle it all back down, it's not about my ability to love as if it was God giving me some great advice. And it's great advice. Worlds can change. Families can change. If we follow, I have a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another. Every other command comes out of that. But what we miss is the why. Is it just to make families better? Is it just to make the world better? No. We do it because Jesus loved us. That God loved us in such a way that he gave us his son, that who should ever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the historical Jesus goes back to that place where you look at the history and what Jesus did and, and the significance of his death, his resurrection, and the redemption that came from that, and you extrapolate what we believe today. But if we're not careful, spirituality can be easily corrupted as we read books about Christianity. We've got to have our feet rooted in the gospel. A great book. I don't know if you've ever read this book or not. Um, it's by Kevin DeYoung, and it's called The Good News That We Almost Forgot. Kevin DeYoung writes this, this book on the Heidelberg Confession, and, and what he says right in the beginning, he says, no doubt the church in the West has many new things to learn. Yes, we do. He said, but for the most part, everything we need to learn is what we've already forgotten. Did you catch that? He says, the chief theological task now facing the Western church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the faith once delivered to the saints. We must remember the truths that spark reformation, revival, and regeneration. Because what matters is what God did through Jesus Christ. The resurrection and the redemption. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I pray, O oh God, what is from you, let it stick to our hearts. What is not from you, let it fall to the ground and shatter. It's in your name we pray. Amen.